Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is July 17th, 2018. And where to begin? We have a very special guest today, syndicated columnist and conservative icon, Mona Charon joins me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You've been promoted to icon. I, I must be getting old. <laughs> well, I want to talk about your new book, uh, your spectacular new book, Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense. Um, but actually, y- yesterday I spent a good uh, deal of time thinking about uh, the title of a previous book you wrote, uh, Useful Idiots. Hmm. Have you... <laughs> Yes, have you considered um, have you considered updating the book I think, because I think it, it seems timely? Yes. Um I you know, look, it, it, this is so far beyond what even the most horrified of us thought was possible with this president. Uh, you know, you would have thought that uh, that he would have come out and said, you know, we had a great meeting and things are going great. And, uh, you know, it's important for the world. He did say some of this, you know, it's important for the world that uh, we have good relationships. But he was absolutely supine before before Putin. He wound up in the position of attacking his own country and 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 cozying up to one of the worst thugs on the planet, which of course he does have experience with, having done such a great job of it with Kim Jong Un. But uh, but this was even more um, spectacularly uh, ill advised, considering all of the rumors and all of the suspicions about how uh, he was, he benefited it's at least to some degree from Russian help in the election. And, um, you know, just in terms of his own self-interest, which is of course the only thing that motivates him, you would have thought that he would have made an attempt not to seem such a poodle, but no. Well, you know, I, I, I had very, very similar reaction to that, which was I, I had very, very low expectations of this summit, um, but it turned out to be far worse than I was expected. And, you know, you know, he was so supine. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece yesterday, you know, talking about how obsequious he was, um, you know, that the reminder that, you know, every strutting playground bully, you know, you know, at the heart of every, you know, strutting playground bully, you know, is this, uh, you know, craven sycophant looking for the bigger bully to suck up to. And on Monday, he found that bigger bully. Yes, um, and, and, and so, and, and, and his, his cowering in front of him was the embarrassment heard around the world. And you had actually had an interesting tweet was exactly along the same line. You said, you know, today is the day that Trump's image as manly is fully revealed as a con. When it counts, he's a sad little weakling. This is the guy who was supposed to be the man on the white horse who he alone could solve all of our problems. And really, all he really, really wants, apparently, is to hold Vladimir Putin's umbrella. Indeed, that is one of the keys to, I think, his appeal for some voters was that he was a strong guy. And after eight years of Barack Obama's sort of effete, academic, weak uh, leadership, it was thought, well, this is a man who really he doesn't take any guff from anyone. Well, like most bullies, um, well, first of all, people mistake bullying for strength. Uh, But like most bullies, he only picks on those who are weaker and he cringes before those who he perceives to be stronger. And um, I know we're we're never, and I I do agree with this myself, so I'm breaking my own rule here, but you're never supposed to um, make references to Germans. But Winston Churchill did have have a, a great line, as usual, about this kind of thing. He said, the Germans are forever at your feet or at your throat. 
very apt again. You know, I, I am very reluctant to get ahead of the facts. And I think that that's always a good good thing to do is, is, is don't go too far. So I, I have no idea whether the the Russians actually have, you know, compromising material on him. And I think it's somewhat dangerous to to, to speculate about it. But it did occur to me that maybe the worst case scenario is that Donald Trump actually believes the things he says, that this mm-hmm. is actually a, a very sincere expression of his admiration uh, for an authoritarian and this absolute inability to stand up for the free world or to challenge, you know, a bloodthirsty, you know, blood soaked thug like Vladimir Putin when he is lying to his face. And all of that, I think, is in many ways even more disturbing than whether there was compromise. I, I completely agree. And I think my colleague and friend Jay Nordlinger has been um, just dauntless in 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 documenting Trump's uh, history of sucking up to autocrats and being sympathetic to thugs throughout his entire life, not just as a candidate. Um, you know, he famously said that the, uh, the 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 butchers of Tiananmen Square that they it seemed like they weren't going to be able to handle it, but then they got tough, and that you know that was they handled it. That was good. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he has he has throughout his career, and even when he was talking about Saddam Hussein, you know, say what you will, he he controlled that country. Oh, he threw a little gas. People get all upset, but he controlled oh. that country. That's the way he talks about uh, autocrats. That doesn't mean he is one, right. because we have a very wonderful system bequeathed us by our ancestors that um, that that makes it very difficult to be that kind of a thug in our system. But that those are where his sympathies lie, and um, that is an leave aside everything else. You know, people say, "Why are you never Trumpers?" Which is a ridiculous phrase. But anyway, why are you people so hostile? Don't you love all the um, all of the policy gains and and of course we like the policy gains, and of course we like the Supreme Court picks, but he violates the most fundamental um, first-tier test for a leader of a free country. Does he believe in freedom? Does he believe in the rule of law? And the answer with Trump is definitely not clear. It is interesting what his concept of patriotism is. You know, he he makes a major issue of the NFL players who do not stand during the national anthem because that is unpatriotic. But then he goes to a hostile foreign power and he sides with one of our enemies at the same time, um, you know, attacking the institutions, you know, not just uh, people in his own administration, but the institutions of his own government. I want to talk about the reaction, um, because, of course, this is always a fascinating question in the age of Trump. What will Republicans say? Uh, John McCain issued a rather, uh, I thought, a rather extraordinary statement. Today's press conference in Helsinki was one of the most disgraceful performances by an American president in memory. And he goes on from there. And there were other relatively strong comments uh, from folks like uh, Jeff Flake, even Lindsey Graham and Paul Ryan, who pushed back on the whole question of of moral equivalency. But Mona Chern, is this going to be any different than the reaction after, say, Charlottesville? Some people are comparing this to the foreign policy equivalent to Charlottesville. And we know that that didn't change any of the dynamic uh, on Capitol Hill or among Republicans. Will, will this change anything? I don't think it will. Um, first of all, there's one thing that we know about Trump is that when he's in trouble, he creates yet another uh, huge controversy to take your minds off the last one. So um, he's if there's anything he's good at, it's dominating the news cycle. So he'll expect something along those lines. Um, and also, you know, people will battle with their consciences and they will win. 
Um, <laughs> as they as they they have a lot of practice at it, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, once basically you you don't have a spine, it, it's it's hard to go and find it when you actually need it. You mentioned something uh, previously, which of course is the transactionalism among Republicans who will say, well, a week ago we're saying, okay, we are vindicated in our support for Trump because he just nominated Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. And, and and that alone makes it worth it, right? Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And of course, you and I both have talked for, for, for many, many years about how important the U.S. Supreme Court is. There's no question about it. But this was one of those moments where you had to realize, you know what, as important as that is, it's just not worth it. The, no. the, the mendacity, the appeasement, the debasement of the presidency, what he's done to Congress, the mockery of decency, the, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the untruth. And that's what was so distressing. But I, but I agree with you that, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing in Congress right now. And a lot of people in Congress are apparently saying, look, what are we supposed to do? We have actually passed all sorts of strong anti-Russian legislation. You know, we we have done all of that. Uh, uh, you know, can we go beyond that? There's no way that we can uh, we, we can, you know, supplant the president of the United, the commander in chief uh, when it comes to foreign policy. But again, you know, I, I think you have in a very rather dramatic way the, the price of the Republican capitulation to Donald Trump. Very much so. But I would just add this. You know, a lot of the liberals are saying, well, you know, some some Republicans are condemning him, but they won't do anything. Will they hold up his nominees? You know, well, that, of course, the liberals would love it if the nominees got if Kavanaugh was you know not given hearings because of this. But that, of course, not gonna would, would, <laughs> it's not going to happen and would not really address the issue. The uh, the. But there are many other things that the Congress could do. You know, there's something called a sense of the Senate resolution uh, where they could express their displeasure and say, this is what the United States stands for. And we condemn the president for saying anything opposite. And, you know, the, uh, the, the Congress can censure him. The Congress can uh, can pass resolutions that uh, express our views on on uh, America's world role. And the fact that we, um, you know, un- in contrast to President Trump, do not think that there is any moral equivalence between ourselves and Putin. You remember that when uh, Bill O'Reilly asked him about Putin, he said, um, he said, well, you know, he kills people. And Trump said, well, you know what? You think we're so innocent? We kill a lot of people, too. So um, it's it's that sort of thing that the uh, Congress, they could stand up on their hind legs and say, no, we disagree with that. We love Kavanaugh, but we disagree with this. And 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 it it, it violates our standards. And you know, back to that Bill O'Reilly thing, I, that was one of those moments where you realize, you know, are, are Republicans and conservatives, more, more importantly, conservatives, are they really going to embrace a moral relativism? I mean, if there was one thing that the conservative movement had made very, very clear, it was the rejection of this moral relativism and certainly any sense of moral equivalency. Well, uh, the Weekly Standard editors um, came out today in favor of uh, the the censure. You know, they pointed out that there were a number of Republicans who were willing to to uh, you know criticize uh, Trump's performance. And then they went on to say only one president in history, Andrew Jackson, has ever been censured by Congress. But Republicans on the Hill would not be out of line in seeking a formal censure of Donald Trump. I didn't under- even know this. Great yeah, minds wait. think alike. We understand that such a measure would be largely symbolic, but symbols matter. It would be no small thing for congressional Republicans to declare in a formal manner that a president who coddles and defends an anti-American despot does not deserve their support. It is hardly a far-fetched idea. Many congressional Democrats, remember, 
advocated the censure rather than the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998, which would have been a good idea. Mm. Passage of a censure resolution by the House or Senate would bring no concrete consequences, but it would be a powerful statement from the GOP that the party le- the party's leaders will not simply ignore or excuse a sitting U.S. president of either party openly crediting America's enemies at the expense of its public servants and of the truth. Beautifully uh, yeah. stated. And I did not even know that that was the Weekly Standard's editorial position when I was suggesting the same thing. So wonderful. Well, I, I, I agree with it. Um, however, um, I think the chances that will actually happen um, are probably slim and none. I mean, there's clearly a majority, probably a rather substantial majority of the Senate that I think would support such a, a resolution. But I guess I have a hard time imagining Mitch McConnell actually bringing that to a vote. And we we kind of know what uh, what the Republican House, uh, how the Republican House does all of this. Yeah, I agree. It it, it is, however, a a tangible response. What do you expect us to do? I did have one thought about Paul Ryan, which, again, this is, you know, the the parade of of, of pain here continues because, of (laughs) course, I've been a friend of Paul Ryan. I still admire him. I think he's a decent man who's made made mistakes. You know, and, and I was glad that he made the statement yesterday, pushing back on Trump. However, you know, in 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 life, we don't always get to choose our legacy. And I think that Paul Ryan at one time thought that his legacy was going to be tackling the national debt, the entitlement crisis. More recently, I think maybe he was thinking, well, maybe my legacy will be, you know, this this big tax cut. You know, at some point, I wonder whether it will dawn on him that his legacy might actually be you know, the role that he played in undermining and perhaps even obstructing the Mueller investigation, you know, into (sighs) Russian interference in the election. So, yes, the statement was welcome. But then you have to juxtapose that with what happened last week, that absolute and pardon my language, Mona. And I I just but this is what I've described the 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 shit show that we had, you know, the House (laughs) committee, you know, with the FBI agent uh, Peter struck that 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 circus that we saw where it became completely clear that the Republican majority had just simply decided they were going to do everything possible to derail the one serious investigation into into the the Russian attack on our our democratic process. Precisely, and and for uh, and for what? Because the the investigation is tainted. I mean, this is exactly what the O.J. Simpson defense amounted to, mm-hmm. right? It was, you know, just attack the process, attack the investigators, find a racist cop, and therefore thereby attempt to discredit the entire investigation. Why did O.J. do that? Because he was guilty. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. And, and, and amazing. I have, I have to, you know, just, just watching Vladimir Putin play and manipulate Donald Trump was, was one of the most cringeworthy moments in, a, in an administration that's been full of those cringeworthy moments. Uh, well, I, well, I want to I talk to you about, you about your book because that is also incredibly timely with, uh, with, the, with the Me Too movement. And to come out with a book that basically says, look, modern feminism has completely lost touch with science, love, and common sense. And I want you to connect those dots. Um, but today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Look, this seems also seems timely because with all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where your data goes. I worry about it. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk because you are being tracked. This is not paranoid. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, they often sell it to other corporations who want to profit from your information. That That's the way it works. So that's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. It's an easy-to-use app. 
that runs seamlessly in the background of your computer, tablet, um, or phone. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click, and what it does is it secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. And protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and you want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. If you don't want to hand over your entire online history to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. So you can protect your online activities during today. And find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash standard. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash standard for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash standard to learn more. Okay, Mona Churn, you start off the introduction to your book, Sex Matters, by saying, and let me just turn to it here, saying that feminism has triumphed. No longer a movement or even a controversy, feminism has become a piety. In many respects, this is worth celebrating. Equality has borne abundant fruit and enriched the lives of women, men, and children. But feminism has carried costs to very high costs. Now, that's an interesting thing to write in the midst of the Me Too movement, where, of course, a lot of feminists are saying, look, our worst fears about men and the treatment of women has been realized. So what are these costs that you see from feminism? And again, I'm asking you to kind of to summarize because and we'll, and we'll walk through this. What, what is the price that we've paid for this overwhelming cultural social triumph of feminism? Well, this book was almost completely finished when the Me Too movement burst on the scene. And I couldn't have been happier because it, um, it validates everything that I was saying about what has gone wrong um, between men and women as a consequence of feminism and other forces. Uh, but, you know, we look around and we see campuses that have to hire phalanxes of Title IX coordinators and, and sexual assault experts and so forth. We see um, uh, divorce through the roof. We see um, bitterness between divorced couples. Uh, we see unhappiness on the part of women. We see single mothers attempting to struggle and do everything themselves. All right. So those are some of the prices that we have paid because of feminism's unwise. Look, feminism did some smart things. They made two critical mistakes. One big mistake. They endorsed and ratified the sexual revolution, which basically knocked down all of the rules about how you were to conduct yourself in the realm of romance, love and sex. Um, they, they, they swept those all away as oppressive. And, um, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in neuroscience to know that by nature, men tend to be the more promiscuous sex and women tend to be the more monogamous sex. Of course, there are individual differences, but as a generality, that is the case. So to imagine that sweeping aside fidelity and marriage um, was an advantage for women uh, was very, very foolish. Um, and by the way, the sexual revolution, without the imprimatur of feminism, would have been just one more effort in a long line of it, historically, of men attempting to get women to let down their guards. But when feminism endorsed it, it became the new mores for our society. And um, 
So I don't disagree with feminists that men misbehave all the time. What I think is, though, that the way to civilize men and women, for that matter, is through strong families and um, and and stable marriages um, and raising little boys to be gentlemen and to be monogamous, to curb their own natural inclinations to have sex with everybody and say, no, actually, you have to just pick one <laughs> and stay faithful. So you're basically saying that, <laughs> that men ultimately win the sexual revolution. If all of that stuff is taken down, it's like it's okay for predatory men. Exactly. You know, they, it's they, okay they, are, for- they are now unleashed. And and on campuses and so forth, you find that what is the the, the so called hookup culture couldn't have been better designed. I mean, for if like if a if a very nasty thirteen year old boy were trying to devise a social system that would make it much easier for him to take advantage of women and even to rape them, he couldn't have done better than to create the hookup culture, which is you know you go at least on campuses, you go out, you get drunk, and you stumble home with somebody you just met. Um, it's a perfect recipe for sexual assault and bad behavior of every kind. Men have been trying to create that kind of a social uh, environment for, for many, many centuries. Now, <laughs> That's right. Your, your, your book is about feminism, but but you are not, um, with no disrespect to her memory, but you're you're not a Phyllis Schlafly. You know, you, 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 you've written about this, that you've basically been living in feminism shadow all of your life. You were, you know, you admired um, I mean, you grew up during the era of, you know, Betty Friedan and, and, and Jermaine Greer. You've had a successful career. You've had a family life. You have benefited from many of the, uh, the at least at least the first wave, first wave of feminism in this country. Right. You, you are not you are not anti-feminist is what I'm getting. No, I, I and and for sure, I'm not anti-strong women. I mean, I I um, I want what is best uh, for both sexes. And it seems to me that we have um, gotten to such a point that the feminists were right about equal pay. They were right um, about, you know, the, the way, for example, rape victims used to be um, doubly uh, victimized by the, the judicial system by asking them about their sexual histories and so forth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of those things were were good reforms. But where they went so badly wrong was in in encouraging enmity toward men in general and saying that that men were the problem and that the family was a trap for women. And in fact, um, you know, you cannot measure, for example, the the success or happiness of of the sexes separately. You know, we need each other. And um the fact that 60% of the undergraduates in America today are female, feminists say, well, that's great. The women are rocking. And I say, well, wait a minute. You know, who are they going to marry? Who are all those yeah. college graduates going to find to marry? That is, a, that is a problem. And if men are falling behind, and they are, we have to examine what we've done that has, that has gone wrong. And um, many of those things are not all. But many of those things are traceable to fe- to some aspects of feminism. I, I think you ask one of the fundamental questions, though, when you, when you step back from all of this, you know, have have all of these successes of feminism made women happier, mm-hmm. either at home or in the workplace? And, and your book essentially makes the case that that no, that women, in fact, are not happier. That that is true, and the the data on this are pretty uh, incontrovertible uh, across the developed world over the last several decades. Women's happiness has steadily dropped, and uh, they so women today are less happy than men. 
They are much more likely to be on an antidepressant. Hmm. Um, and they are more, uh, they are less happy than their mothers or their grandmothers were at a similar stage of life. And um, that is something that uh, I think is attributable to the fact that women want and need security. And the world that the feminists have helped to create is one that denies security to more and more women. They don't have the security of marriage. They don't have the security of a sexual code that requires men to behave themselves. Um, and uh, and so they are and they're adrift when they when they're raising kids on their own. Um, it's a it's a terribly insecure life. Um, so um, so I think that is is a big part of the reason that you see these declines in happiness and you don't see it among married couples they are the happiest uh, cohort that you can find well you know you also point out that this has contributed to rising inequality actually uh, this morning when i was 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 driving over here i was i was listening to a discussion of of you know you know you know how the american dream has sort of been been broken because we are becoming a society of have and have not in the breakdown of marriage is is one of the major contributors to income inequality that we have in in society today, isn't it? It is. It is the biggest driver. Um, if you look at, for example, um, African American couples, if you look at African American married couples, their poverty rate is about eight percent, which is half the national average. Um, whereas Black single mothers, 47% of them are in poverty. And um, 50% of America's children of all races and uh, groups can expect to spend at least some part of their childhoods now in a single parent family. And that means they are far more likely to have to live in poverty and uh, far more likely to have other kinds of pathologies that we know are associated with fatherlessness. And that's a whole other subject that I get into in the book, that um, fathers bring specific mm -hmm. wonderful traits to the job of parenting. It's not to take anything away from the heroic single mothers who do a great job, and many do. But we do know that what's best, what's ideal, you know how they say breast is best and we had that big controversy about breastfeeding? You know, it doesn't mean that you ought to be shamed if you bottle feed your baby, but the data are pretty clear that breast is best. Well, the data are very clear that fathers and mothers bring complementary traits to parenting. Fathers tend to be more challenging to their children, to set high standards, to demand more. Mothers tend to be more nurturing, forgiving. I can testify to this in my own family. And um, But the kids get the combination, and then they seem to thrive. Whereas if they um, are denied that paternal influence, so there's all kinds of really interesting data, like even about Take something like um, adolescent girls uh, feeling uh, adolescent girls self-esteem. The self-esteem of adolescent girls who grow up without fathers is is significantly lower than those who grow up with their dads. Uh, it's just there are so yeah. many interesting aspects of this. It's 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 painful as a dad that we have to make the case again that actually fathers matter. But this is right. coming for this has been coming for some time. I love the, uh, the, the some of the, uh, the the chapter subheadings, including. Motherhood is not oppression. In, in <laughs> fact, you 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 make you make the case that you can be pro woman and pro family at the same time, 
And again, it seems so awkward that we even have to make that case. Well, yeah, that's it. I mean, you of course you're pro-woman and pro-family at the same time because the women who are the happiest and the families that are the, doing the best are the married families. Um, to be to be pro-woman, does that mean that you want mothers living in poverty and being on welfare and or, or having to struggle at a at a job and and rush home to get the bus you know get the bus home to pick up their kid from daycare? I mean, is that being pro-woman? No, you want her to have. You want that woman to have a loving husband and uh, a stable family life so that she can make her choices. Now, this is the part where the feminists were, are coming after me, and they, they, I know mm-hmm. they hate this. But look, the women do make different choices from men. And I argue in the book that it's because they want to, not because of the patriarchy. Women like spending time with their own children when they have that option. And if you look across the developed world, even in countries like Scandinavia or Israel, where they go out of their way, they make such a huge effort to do financial incentives and other kinds of things to keep uh, to keep childcare 50-50 between husbands and wives or between couples. It's still the case that even in those countries, women do the lion's share. And I submit it's because they want to. It's it's that simple. Um, and so yeah. I want women to be able to do what they want to do and what they always seem to choose to do. I don't mean when I say always, of course, bear in mind, uh, these are generalities. Right. There, are, there are differences. And I'm totally fine with a woman who wants to be the principal breadwinner while her husband stays home with the kids. I just want somebody to be there with the kids. So you you document all of the the the, the breakdown, you know, the the campus rape culture, the hookup culture, um, you know, many of the dysfunctions that have that that have come from this. Is it fair? And I'm guessing you've had some pushback on this to blame feminism for this. Aren't there so many other uh, breakdowns in our culture and in, in social developments? What is the specific responsibility of feminism for all of these things? Well, um, the breakdown in uh, family life is directly attributable to two things, the sexual revolution and the feminist revolution. Um, the feminist said a man, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And uh, there was, you know, and so the, the message was quite clear that that the women uh, needed to be freed from the expectation of marriage. And uh, let me drop a footnote. Of course, it's fine that women don't who don't want to marry don't marry. I'm not saying everybody needs to. I'm not a coercive uh, right. utopian. Right. But um, <clears throat> but the fact is that, the as I argue in the book, Um, So the sexual revolution came on. We touched on this earlier. If the feminists had not endorsed the sexual revolution, it never really would have become the norm. It wouldn't have become our new um, social system. But it did. And it was very, very harmful to families, which in turn was harmful to um, uh, the the social compact, which in turn caused neighborhoods. You know, we now know that if you grow up in a, there's social science evidence to to suggest, Raj Chetty and others at Harvard, if you grow up, if you have an intact family, but you grow up in a neighborhood where most of the families are single parent, you're harmed by that. Um, so, you know, these things have radiating effects. The, the um, social science is really overwhelming on, on, on these issues that you, that you describe and that you document. And so that you, we have a rather dramatic uh, cultural, social, ideological denial of what Absolutely. I think a lot of people understand instinctively, but also, which is very clearly documented, you know, throughout, you know, throughout, uh, you know, throughout social, social, uh, social science, we, we uh, you know, because these are inconvenient truths. Well, it's amazing. Any time, just 
pay attention next time there's a discussion about poverty or inequality or, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, in our society, you will hear all kinds of explanation, the loss of factory jobs or, you know, increasing racism or something else. And nobody will ever say, well, it's family structure. It's it's the fact that people aren't getting married. I mean, you know, we now have a bifurcated society where the upper third, the people who go to college and get advanced degrees of various kinds, tend to marry and stay married. And the people in the lower uh, educated groups, marriage is, is becoming uh, ever, ever scarcer. And that does, it sort of, it reinforces the social divisions. So those kids in the upper third are going to get everything they need. They're going to get all the lessons. They're going to get the stability. Of course, they're going to do well. And the kids in the, in the other groups, well, maybe they will and maybe they won't. But it becomes even harder for a kid who's born to a single parent in a, in a struggling situation to get that leg up on the financial ladder, on the uh, economic ladder, uh, than it was in the old days. Uh, when they had social support networks based on families. All right, I'm going to want to circle back, and maybe maybe we have addressed this, but you know, one, one of the, the 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 points you make is that with that uh, one of the negative or more toxic uh, legacies of, of feminism is seeing men as the enemy. But the reality is that some men are the enemy. Harvey Weinstein is the enemy, right? And so let's yes. talk about the, the Me Too movement. And I will admit that as somebody who has written about the campus rape culture, who has written about, you know, our culture of victimization, to actually see how many of these men are behave like animals. I mean, they are they are the, the un, unleashed predators is one of those. OK, so you folks were not exaggerating some of that. So in terms yeah. of what we learned in Me Too, Men behaving extremely badly, um, is that a result of the sexual revolution? Is that a result of feminism or, or you know, is, is in fact this, this you know, do, don't we have to acknowledge that in fact, um, you know, men, 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 are, men are pigs and behave accordingly? <laughs> so I'm really glad you, you brought this up because one of the things that I was pushing back against in the chapter on campus rape is that there is a tendency on the part of conservatives. We know what the liberals do, right? They say it's rape culture and it's, and it's misogyny and it's, and it's patriarchy. Um, but what conservatives strangely have done is they've said, oh, come on, it's all regretted sex. And these women are, you know, they're, they're making it up and there's nothing, there's no problem here. Well, there's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought that conservatives with their understanding that we come into this world uncivilized and that we become civilized through institutions like families, churches and communities, that when you withdraw those civilizing influences, men, some men, uh, maybe many will revert to their natural state, which is not a pretty thing. And one of the things that I noted in my uh, section on campus rape is, yeah, there are a lot of men who are taking advantage of the situation and behaving like pigs. You bet. And I, I list some of them. I mean, I couldn't, if, if there are mm-hmm. too many to list. All, and with the Me Too movement, the, the, this, um, this behavior uh, on the part of men in positions of power is just reprehensible. Well, so... You ask, do I blame feminism? Do I blame the sexual revolution? Both. And also the total um, caving into the desire to um, to just fulfill our needs and not engage in self-control that is so yeah. much hallmark mm-hmm. of our characters these days. So we have a pornography industry. The number of men who are, and women too, but mostly men, who are consuming pornography on a daily basis is off the charts. 
And when that sort of thing gets a wink and a nod from the society at large, it does normalize it and it normalizes things such as Harvey Weinstein. Where did he get the idea that, you know, you should masturbate into a potted plant? I, I can't imagine. That I still got don't it from get reading that. Jane Austen. Yeah, no, he he did he did not he did not get that from reading the Bronte sisters or, or Jane Austen. I, I don't even think it's in Thackeray. I I think yeah, he got that yeah, someplace I, else. It's safe, right? So what is what is the harshest criti- criticism that you're getting from feminists? What 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 is the one thing that you think they they fundamentally misunderstand about your book, your case? Oh, well, you know, they, they I'm actually a little disappointed in them, you know, and maybe some more of them can can weigh in. But, uh, you know, you get this sort of ridiculous hackneyed old phrase about she wants to return women to the kitchen and the bedroom. She wants to create a handmaid's tale. Really? You know, that's women it. Are just breeder. Yeah, that's that is disappointing. Yeah, that is pretty hackneyed. Right. Although we do, I will we, say we do I live in the age of we do live in the age of cliches, as Jonathan, uh, as Jonah Goldberg pointed out. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm putting out a call right here for some some higher class feminist critiques. Come on, ladies. Mona <laughs> <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much. The book is Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love and Common Sense. And it uh, it feels incredibly uh, relevant, not just for the Me Too movement, but for also, you know, asking why why are we having so much breakdown? What 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 is actually happening to American culture? What what is the what is the, what are the roots of the inequality in the way we treat one another? And uh, this is a, a highly politically incorrect book, um, <laughs> which it has also become a cliche. You you would embrace that, right? That this yes, is, I would. This is this is this is this is if you read this this summer, this will be the most countercultural thing that you do. Well, that's your and thanks so much for uh, joining us today on the Daily uh, Standard Podcast. Thanks so much, Charlie. It was great fun. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will be doing this all over again. <laughs>